special alert. Nate was laid off from his day job. So if you love the show and want to keep it going, we have a GoFundMe to pay for a year of production work. Please support the show if you can. The link will be in the description. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Scott B. Bomar to talk about his book, The Birds, 1964-1967, which he co-wrote with surviving original birds Roger McGuinn, David Crosby, and Chris Hillman. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Scott B. Bomar, the co-author of The Birds, 1964 to 1967, and his co-authors are Roger McGuinn, Chris Hillman, and David Crosby. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. And so this has been a long time coming. Roger McGuinn in particular has been reluctant to do any bird stuff. Was it hard to get these guys together to work on this project? Yeah. Um, so in my uh, my day job, so to speak, which doesn't really feel like a job because it's so much fun, uh, I work for BMG, which is, uh, of course, a, a big music company. Um, but we started publishing books a few years ago, kind of operating as an independent publisher of music-related books, kind of hiding out in this giant music company. And, uh, you know, we just do projects that we think are, are cool or that have uh, an audience that's maybe been overlooked by some of the other larger publishing companies. Uh, and we did a book with Chris Hillman a few years back. He wrote his memoir, um, with us, which is called Time Between. And I had a great time working on that with Chris. And, um, you know, he's just got a kind of a natural instinct for, um, for writing and, and he's a good storyteller. And uh, it just kind of got the, the wheels turning of, man, I wonder if there's something we could do uh, with the birds here. And um, David Crosby was already a BMG client um, in terms of, of his uh, recorded music. And thought, well, we got two of the, the three original guys. I wonder if we could get Roger on board for something like this. And, um, you know, it took a, a little bit of coaxing, but not too much. I think that, that he was happy to um, to participate once he kind of got a sense of the, the vision for the project and what we wanted to do. So, um, you know, and I think we started working on it really uh, right about the time the pandemic hit. So um, suddenly everybody's stuck at home and uh, had a little more time to, to focus on it. So it really just kind of came together um, naturally and, and organically and uh, really unfolded in a cool way. Yeah, it's a beautiful book and it really brings back i mean it, it really puts it in your face 
how much the extent to which the birds were rock stars and a time when that was a big deal, like right on the heels of the Beatles. And also at a time, you know, they were acolytes of Bob Dylan at a time when Bob Dylan was, quote unquote, quote, the voice of his generation. And they managed to combine that kind of seriousness and thoughtfulness of the folk scene with the excitement and even the hysteria of the pop scene. And, you know, I mean, we kind of think of the birds now because they've systematically kind of not promoted themselves as the original birds as such. And so unlike the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, this is, I guess, the first coffee table book about the birds that to go on your set, you know, on yourself with your Beatles books and your Rolling Stone books. But it really kind of brings it home. And it also, in the intro, it, it, it describes the book as a lens through which to understand the image or images of the birds in their peak commercial years. And these are iconic images. I mean, these guys were a big deal who totally changed the look of pop culture and seeing them in front of the crowds they were playing to. I mean, we think of 1964, 1965 as mop top haircuts and Roger McGuinn granny glasses and stuff like that. But then you see these crowds they're playing to and it's all flat tops and bouffants. I mean, these guys were really, (laughs) you know, changing the culture. Yeah, they really took, um, you know, there was a scene that that was forming on the Sunset Strip uh, here in L.A. in in the mid 60s. And the birds were kind of the epicenter of that scene when they were playing at a club called Zero's. And um, that was really like you had dancers and you had, I guess, what would soon be called hippies and kind of this countercultural youth movement that was happening on the Sunset Strip. And then the birds went out on tour and some of the dancers from the scene followed along with them. And, um, you know, all three of the guys kind of talked about they would go into these places in the Midwest and play these fairs or or whatever it was. And you had this kind of, um, you know, very traditional uh, conservative small town America scene. And then you've got these dancers who are just like letting their freak flag fly and the locals are going what in the world are we even seeing? Uh, so it really was kind of exporting the the LA youth culture to the rest of America. Um, and, you know, we, we just take for granted now how fast trends move because we live in a very wired and connected world. And at that time, uh, that wasn't the case. These guys were like ambassadors of, of a scene, um, but at the same time did not really view themselves as, any kind of fashion icons. I mean, they, they just sort of talk in the book about how they, you know, put on what they put on and they weren't trying to be, you know, create any trends or anything like that. Um, but they did, I mean, it had such a a strong visual image. Yeah, absolutely. And that really comes through, you know, flipping through the book and you should mention the late Gene Clark, the original, uh, co-founder of the group, a singer-songwriter, and also Michael Clark, the original drummer of the group, both of whom passed away and couldn't participate in the project. But those guys, plus Crosby, McGuinn, and Hillman, I mean, they were sharp-looking, hip, young dudes. They were beautiful, the beauty of youth, and, you know, very much of the moment. But it's also kind of, you know, one of the, another big shock is right at the front of the book, when you see McGuinn, Clark, and Crosby and they look like the Kingston trio. They've got button-down shirts and short, you know, haircuts come to the side. Talk about their pop folk background and and how these guys had already been pretty successful in that milieu. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, these guys all kind of came from that folk music world. And, and you hear it, of course, when you hear uh, the harmonies that, that they were bringing to the table, even in the early days of the band. Um, they came from that folk singing, harmony singing type of background. And Roger McGuinn had definitely been the most uh, successful. He'd played with a group called the Limelighters. Um, he'd played with Bobby Darren. He'd spent time uh, writing songs on the Brill Building scene in New York. Uh, but he was really immersed. He, he'd played on Judy Collins sessions uh, in in New York. I mean, he was he was immersed in the folk world. And I think Roger really has always viewed himself as a folk troubadour. Like to this day, like that's his that's his primary identity is he's a, a folk folk singer you know um and so that was very much his background and uh gene and david too i mean they were very much into the folk scene and and uh that was their world and it just so happened that that the three of them uh appreciated the beatles they recognized something in the beatles that a lot of the folk community was dismissive of you know they thought it was a pop confection or you know not music to be taken seriously um but these three guys did take it seriously so they truly were just folk guys who happened to appreciate the beatles um and and it all kind of developed from there yeah absolutely and they were you know early to the to the Beatle thing. I mean, as soon as the Beatles hit in the States in 19, early 1964, you know, there's stories about Gene Clark on tour with the, the new Christy Minstrels just feeding a jukebox and hearing, I want to hold your hand and she loves you over and over again. And so when he meets McGuinn at the Troubadour in LA after Clark quit um, the new Christy Minstrels and McGuinn's playing Beatles songs and he's also doing Dylan songs in 4-4 time and Clark immediately recognized what he was doing and said, hey man, you know, I got to get in on this. Well, let's go ahead and hear our first track. This is uh, from, from the Birds pre-flight album. So I'm assuming they were called the Jet Set when they recorded this. This is a McGuinn, Gene Clark uh, collaboration called You Won't Have to Cry. Oh, you know it makes me sad To see you feel so bad But it's happened to you many times before but if you will come with me, then girl, you will see that you won't have to cry anymore. There's no reason to And that was the birds, who I believe at that time were known as the Jet Set, doing a Gene Clark, Roger McGuinn collaboration called You Won't Have to Cry. And of course, Roger McGuinn was known as Jim McGuinn at the time. He would change his name for religious reasons in 1967. And Crosby comes along. He hears these two guys singing and they're not doing harmonies. That's one thing I didn't know until just recently when I was reading the John Anderson's Gene Clark biography that Clark and McGuinn were singing in unison most of the time. And Crosby comes along with this gift for harmonies and is like, I know what you guys need. <laughs> and and oh, yeah. Pops right in. Can you talk about that dynamic between the original three founders? Yeah, I mean, I think that that what Gene and Roger were doing, because Roger was uh, a, a good singer and, and an accomplished musician, and uh, Gene was a, a good singer, and, and the two of them, you know, I think it was just this kind of, like, you know, if you're traveling uh, in another country where English is not the, the primary language and you hear somebody talking across the room and you realize, oh, 
that's an American over there. And <laughs> there's almost like this, hey, I see you. There's this there's this kind of kinship only because you're in in this uh, unfamiliar environment. And suddenly you're connecting with somebody that you might not talk to at all if you happen to run into them in a grocery store back home. You know, there's this sense of camaraderie. And I think that that's what uh, McGuinn and Clark had was this sense of camaraderie at the Troubadour scene because they both loved the Beatles. And it wasn't like they had, you know, 10, 12 other people that they could hang out with and sing Beatles songs together or try their hand at writing Beatle type songs together because it's just that there wasn't that scene. Um, so I think the two of them really bonded primarily over just that shared uh, love of both folk music and the Beatles. But when Crosby came along and and added that harmony, it was like, oh, wow, okay, something just came to life here. And I think that even though Crosby was immersed in the folk scene, it's funny if, if you look in the book and, you know, it's primarily a a photo book, but it does have a lot of text um, of oral history of the guys just talking about, you know, how all this unfolded and, and the memories that, you know, came along uh, from seeing the photos again. But but if you look at the photos, um, as you say, they all look like the Kingston trio. But then Crosby has this like little gold medallion necklace uh, and his shirt's like unbuttoned one extra button. And I love that photo because it, it's almost like, OK, Crosby is already bringing a little rock and roll attitude uh, to this to this folk thing. Um, and so I think that that he brought not only um, beautiful harmonies, but also a little bit of like a, an edge that lend itself well to a, a rock and roll setting. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to learn, you know, that Crosby was basically kind of a folk jazz guy, that he's a student, just like the great Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, that Crosby was also a student of the Ford Freshman and the High Lows, which are acts that get no shine today whatsoever, unless you dig into the backgrounds of the Beach Boys and the Birds. And I highly recommend, um, you know, the Ford Freshman in particular, totally weird from a 2020 perspective, this kind of hipster jazz pop thing from the 50s that's really uh, they didn't have many descendants except for the most influential rock comedy groups in America, you know, so it's, it's right. weird right. That, that are so influential on such popular groups and yet kind of didn't leave a mark. And um, But so Crosby comes along, meets these other two cats, and Crosby already has some biz connections. There's a guy named Jim Dixon who comes into the story and – is you know basically the backer of the the proto birds and is um you know helps him recruit a rhythm section helps him uh find investors to pay for their equipment that was something else i learned in the book that i had no idea that a society a debutante actually um ponied up for the for the birds equipment and got a slice of their royalties which had to have been a good deal um oh, for her yeah. as long as county was done on that and these early pictures of the birds, there's, you know, the, the first set of photos of the, th the trio looking like, you know, the Kingston trio or Lex ba Baxter's Balladeers, which was Crosby's group. And then suddenly it's a five piece and they're wearing beetle suits. And um, it's, it's a dramatic change. And it's not something like this is not how they made their public debut. Like we see them in 1965 exploding onto the scene, you know, with the number one hit cover of Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man. And they've got this, you know, very much a mod pop British rock star look, but not this Beatles look. And so it's interesting. And this whole period, they spent like a year 
Dixon had access to a studio where they could come in after hours and rehearse. And that's why I wanted to play one of those early tracks from the pre-flight period, because, you know, Michael Clark was a bongo player at best. They picked him because he looked like Brian Jones. He wasn't an experienced drummer. Chris Hillman was a, a bluegrass mandolin player who was learning to play bass. So we think of them as kind of, I mean, there's a whole, history of folk rock bands that weren't really rockers like the grateful dead right. and the an airplane would later on have that but when you hear these pre-flight sessions and mcguinn talks about it in the book because they could rehearse and tape themselves and go back and hear it they really improved dramatically and so by the time they start playing live at at zeros in 19 early 65 they're actually a pretty tight little rock and combo right yeah i i almost think of it as like a football team that's uh, watching tapes of their previous game and analyzing, okay, how did how did that play work? How did you know? Uh, how do we keep doing that or or avoid the things that that didn't work? You know, you kind of have that instant feedback, and I think we take that for granted today. I mean, a band could get together and somebody could just set their iPhone down and record the entire rehearsal, and they could listen to it and get more of a objective sense of what they really sound like. Um, or even do like a, a multi-track recording pretty easily now. But uh, at the time, that was pretty unique. You didn't have a lot of garage bands who had the ability to record themselves and then listen back to it. I mean, a lot of bands, the first time they ever recorded at all was was maybe they'd get a chance to do an independent single or something like that. Um, so these guys had the opportunity to go in basically every night and rehearse, write songs, record, try out some things, and listen back to it immediately. Um, and, you know, there's nothing like the objectivity of tape to, to let you know that maybe what felt great in the room, you listen and go, oh, it wasn't quite uh, what I thought. Or, you know, the flip side of that, you go, wow, this is pretty magical. Um, so it, it really gave that instant feedback in all three of the guys. And, and you know, really what I wanted to do with the book, um, I wanted it to be like you're flipping through a scrapbook of birds photos and you have uh Crosby, Hillman, and McGuinn standing behind you, looking over your shoulder, commenting on, on what you're seeing. That's the experience that I wanted uh, the book to be for for the reader and for the person looking at the photos. And they all talked about um, in that in the kind of oral history that that gave them an advantage that allowed them to just leap light years ahead of other bands because they had access to that studio. So that was a a uh, huge game changer. And I think they all credit that as being um, really pivotal to uh, what allowed them to move much more quickly than other new bands might have been able to do. Yeah, let's go ahead and hear our next song. When we come back, I want to talk about another thing that Jim Dixon did that really helped uh, jumpstart their success. But let's go ahead and hear, this is um, from their first album, Mr. Tambourine Man. This is a version of Pete Seeger's uh, version of The Bells of Rimney, which in Jim McGuinn, now Roger McGuinn on lead vocal. Oh, what will you give me? Say the sad bells of me. Is there hope for the future? Say the brown bells of Mercury. Who made the And that was a belt of Rimney featuring one of the famous uh, 12 string electric guitar riffs that 
Roger McGuinn revolutionized the world of music with in 1965. And, and of course, um, Pete Seeger was also the source for McGuinn's version of Turn, 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 which became their second massive number one hit. But before we get to the number one hits, I want to talk about one other thing that the book reveals that Jim Dixon did on purpose. And, and this was, he created a scene around the birds from the very beginning before they were even the birds. He's having people like Lenny Bruce drop in and listen to them rehearse. And so by the time that they debut uh, at Ciro's, there's a real exciting blend of people there. There's, there's young Hollywood is there celebrities, people like Steve McQueen are there, but also these like proto hippies that you talked about, like, you know, which makes me think of Eden Abbas, the songwriter behind Nat King Cole's Nature Boy, who famously lived underneath the Hollywood land sign in the hills and lived this proto-hippie lifestyle starting in the late 40s. And there was a whole scene of people like that, dressing like what we would now think of as a Renaissance fair. And, you know, you mentioned that they even took them to the Midwest. So um, just very canny management from Dixon in putting those things together. Like, to what extent did you get a feel for, I mean, Crosby in particular has some negative things to say about Dixon, even alleges that he beat up Chris Hillman and he talks about the fist fight that Crosby and Dixon have. But how did you feel like, how do those guys see Dixon at this point? Are they grateful to him? Do they recognize that he was kind of a visionary or do they feel like anybody could have done that for them? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to speak for, for them, but I think that what comes across in, in the book and what came across in my conversations with them is that you know, they recognize that that Jim Dixon played uh, a very important role in exposing them and uh, creating, you know, a, a scene in L.A. that they kind of coalesced around the birds and obviously, you know, taking a chance on them, believing in them, giving them that studio time. All that was essential. But, you know, the, he could be volatile. Um, and I know that they all had their own run ins with him at, at various times. And, um, you know, I, I think it's I think they would all probably say it's a mixed bag uh, that, yeah, they're they're really grateful for some of the things that that came about, um, you know, through that relationship. And then there was also some challenges uh, with that relationship, as there there often is when you're, you know, kind of dealing with intense, uh, rapidly moving situations in uh, in an industry that they were still kind of inventing in a way. So. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think any of them would be like, yeah, Jim Dixon's my best friend. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think they all recognize that at that time and the place that the way things came together and, and his role in that was important. Yeah. And his probably his possibly his biggest contribution to the band was finding the demo of Bob Dylan's Mr. Tampering Man, which hadn't even been released as an album track yet. I think he got a hold of a version uh, with Bob Dylan and Jack Elliott singing it. And, and, um, the band wasn't initially that hot on it. I mean, David Crosby in particular was supposedly pretty negative about it, but they, they pressed through and, um, you know, recorded, even get Bob Dylan to come by and drop in and hear it and give it kind of his blessing. And I think, uh, you know, I've seen other things where Hillsman and, and the late Gene Clark both kind of said, you know, Crosby once Bob Dylan was there and it was a big scene and Crosby was, you know, at the front of the pack uh, talking to Bob Dylan and everything. But the, the, 
to me, like this, these pictures in the book of, of Bob Dylan on stage with the birds who are wearing these weird jerseys, matching jerseys and sport coats. So the look's already evolving. Yeah. Um, but it really brings home, like, these guys started a whole revolution. I mean, you already had Southern California rock with, like, Dick Dale and the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean. But those guys were not on the Hollywood strip. They were playing, you know, high school gyms and had records on the radio and stuff. But the birds start this Hollywood scene that, you know, it's the birds and then it's love and it's the doors and on and on and, and totally create what we think of as rock music, as live rock music. Um, that just leaps out of this book that this is just in a few pages, you know, you go from the Kingston trio look to suddenly it's sunglasses at night and it's these crowds and zeros. And it really brought home to me, like, and also the fact that they were a dance band, like you don't think of the birds as dance music today, but in 1960 or 1965, Kids were shimmying to this stuff. This was dance music. It was in four-four time with with drums and electric bass. And um, I just want to commend you for for kind of bringing that to life and really putting it in our faces. Um, you know how yeah, much they were. The thing, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say I, I think the thing that strikes me as I go through and as we were putting together the photos for the book. I mean, we. There's a lot of photos in here that have never been seen before, but but this represents like maybe a third of the total photos that we gathered together to to look at. Some of them just weren't great photos, um, you know, and so they didn't make it in. But um, but the a lot of the stuff here hasn't been seen, and when you really put it together um, and you you put it in chronological order, um, you mentioned just how quickly you know, they were evolving, not only in their music, but in the, the visual image. Um, and again, like all three of those guys emphasized, like we weren't trying to accomplish anything with the visual image, but uh, even if it was just a happy accident, you can't deny how quickly they were evolving. And, and like you say, they're still, when, when they're on stage with Dylan, um, you know, like half the guys are wearing these kind of matching shirts and then you know, a couple of the guys are not. And like the, one of the sport coats from the, from the Beatle days still kind of lingers, but it's not that, you know, it's like kind of half uniform, not uniform. And then like within days of that, you have, you know, everybody's kind of dressing differently and, you know, you don't have any uniformity anymore, but all those things were happening so quickly. Um, and you think about like, Roger McGuinn's iconic granny glasses. And you, know, you could almost draw like a crude, like cartoon with those glasses and, and show it to any music fan and go, who's this? And they go, Roger McGuinn, you would recognize it uh, from the glasses, but he wore those glasses for like nine months. <laughs> and, and it's become so uh, such a, a core part of his image, but the glasses didn't even last a full year really. Um, and as you look through the book, you see like, man, just within short times, just within a few months, the visual image was completely changing. And when you look at the, the Kingston trio look from 1964, and then you go to the end of the book and look at 1967, you're like, they went a, a huge distance and through a lot of different visual images in basically three, four years. Um, it, it's pretty wild. Yeah, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about what Jim or Roger McGuinn met with when he said the Birds was an electronic magazine. 
And you've got a great quote in the book from Roger McGuinn, who describes the birds, the complete package of the birds as an electronic magazine that combined media. That they, they were hitting people through the ears on AM radio, but they were also, you know, and, and on record albums. But the record albums were these big picture discs. They, you know, even the singles would have picture picture sleeves on them. And the, and the iconic fisheye photographs uh, on the cover of Mr. Tambourine Man. I mean, the fisheye lens had just become commercially available when when that photo dropped. So they're very much on the cutting edge of visual arts, um, very edgy PR photos, but also 16 millimeter films and TV p- appearances and live gigs. So it was this whole package and it was all covered ravenously by the teeny bop magazines like we didn't have rolling stone or even crawdaddy at this point but we did have 16 and the other teen magazines that were you know full of beatles and jerry and the pacemakers and looking for something new and something american and the birds really hit that spot and it's hard to fathom how fast they became so famous because they you know, having a number one hit in 1965 is a level of fame. I don't even know if it's possible today because of, you know, only had three networks, basically had two major news magazines, and each city basically had one newspaper. And those yeah. publications covered rock and roll and pop in a way that they wouldn't in just a few years. But at this point, the GI generation is still very open to, hey, what are those crazy kids doing? And then these freaks like the birds sneak through and totally subvert the game. Like it's, I mean, just look at these fisheye lenses. Did they have any idea how radical what they were putting across was to the rest of the country? I don't think so. Um, You know, I think that they were just kind of doing what they liked and, you know, the fisheye lens, um, those photos were taken by Barry Feinstein and, and he, um, you know, brought that and, and the guys had never seen anything like that before. Um, and they were just kind of fascinated by it, you know? So I think that they were, um, representative of just a mindset in Southern California at the time. Hey, let's try new stuff. Let's, let's do new things. I don't think they viewed themselves as revolutionaries as much as they viewed themselves as music lovers who had open minds to, to try different things. You know, they were listening to John Coltrane and Ravi Shankar and, and trying to bring in some of those elements, but they were, you know, Chris came from a country and bluegrass background. Um, whereas the other guys came from a a folk background. And so there was nothing that was off limits. So I think there was just a, a, a very exploratory mindset and also just being, young guys and and not feeling like there were rules that applied to them and and also they were kind of i mean the the rock music industry as it were was just being born so there there kind of weren't rules so i don't think they thought like hey we're gonna go out here and and change the culture um but they just did what they wanted to do and explored musically what they wanted to explore and it happened to come along at a time where um there was a this sort of cultural zeitgeist that that fit hand in glove with the kind of mindset that these guys had so um you know, i think above all the thing that that came across to me in my conversations with them is they just love they love music and they love not being hemmed in or you know, uh, defined by only doing one type of music. So, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think they ever set out to kind of become cultural revolutionaries. And I think they all probably, uh, 
still would go, nah, nah, that's, you know, we didn't do that. But, uh, but, you know, uh, objectively, yeah, they did. <laughs> might not, might not have been uh, the goal, um, but uh, it, it was the result. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your point about um, bringing LA to the, to the heartland is, is this was a period of time when the urban centers really were, months ahead of the rest of the country. And even though, you know, we had television and radio and magazines and newspapers spreading the word and then acts like birds actually traveling and playing those high school gyms. And you can really see, you know, in those pictures of them just two or three feet above the crowd and the crowd is right up on the stage. And there's one great picture of, you know, it's just the sea of bouffant hairdos and, not quite. Well, there's a couple of crew cuts in there, but, you know, short 60s haircuts. And then there's this one kid with his Beatles haircut and his granny glasses and kind of a blousy <laughs> looking shirt. And you just really feel like I guarantee you that kid was in a local band, you know, that 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 it's this Pied Piper effect that they're spreading out, um, you know, through the whole country. But I want to get back a little bit to the record production aspect. We talked about how they had rehearsed in the record studios, but then they signed to Columbia based on a recommendation from Miles Davis, which, you know, wow. Like, <laughs> how, did, how, did, <laughs> right. how did they hook that up? But And this is also a group of people, like, they did a photo shoot even before they were named the, the – um, the birds for Cosmo with Peggy Moffat, who was like one of these A-list models at the time, you know, so from right from the beginning, they're connected to this real elite of image makers and opinion leaders and people like Miles Davis, you know, are aware of, of what they're doing, but they, they get signed to Columbia, which is infamously not a rock and roll label. I mean, Mitch Miller is still in charge of the label. You know, this is the guy behind how, how much is that doggy in the window and sing along with Mitch and famous enemy of rock and roll. But, you know, Miles Davis was one of their premier, you know, blue chip artists and, and actually moved quite a few units for a jazz artist at, at that period. So they get on board and Terry Melcher, the son of Doris Day and, you know, erstwhile singer for the rip chords and partner with Bruce Johnson, one of the, you know, I guess the third architect of, of the beach sound after the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean becomes their producer. And in, in one sense, the work speaks for itself. I mean, two massive number one hits, two classic albums. But David Crosby in particular doesn't have anything nice to say about Terry Melcher. How did you feel like the other guys view Melcher? Um, I think I think Chris and and Roger today have a pretty uh, favorable view of of Terry. I mean, they all kind of chuckle at uh, how many kind of rules and regulations there were about recording and and when they had to stop and take breaks because of the union guidelines and and you know when they came to Columbia, as you say, Columbia was not a a hip uh, you know rock and roll label. And they, you know, <laughs> they had to to deal with some of the old ways of, of doing things. And, um, you know, I think they kind of all at this point kind of smirk at, at how, um, you know, how, how different it was then as opposed to, to later on in the late 60s and into the 70s when, you know, bands would just kind of go camp out in the studio and, and write a whole record in the studio and, and approach it very differently. It was a very rigid kind of approach to recording, but, um, you know, I think that, that Roger and, and Chris appreciate 
that Melcher was kind of attuned to pop radio and, and helped them probably come across uh, a little bit more radio friendly. And um, they don't, they don't have uh, the animosity or, or the bad feelings that Crosby does, but it's no secret that Crosby uh, and Terry Melcher did not get along. They really butted heads. And uh, to this day, Crosby is no Terry Melcher fan. He makes that uh, very clear in the book. Um, but uh, but no, Chris and, and Roger, they, they don't have any beef with Terry. They, they, I think they both feel like he um, you know, was able to bring something to the table that uh, was good for them. And uh, so there's, there's definitely a, a massive variance of opinion about Terry Melcher amongst the, the founding members of the band. Yeah, no doubt. Well, let's go ahead and hear our third song. And this is from uh, 1967, their Younger Than Yesterday album. And this is a Chris Hillman song, The Girl with No Name. the girl with her name from the bird's third album younger than yesterday written by chris hillman and suddenly we're talking about chris hillman songs which means uh, something happened to gene clark who had been the driving songwriting engine on the first two albums but suddenly in 1966 right after the release of of his song eight miles high possibly you know some people consider that the absolute peak of the bird's influence and and prowess you know way ahead of its time like you said they'd been listening to ravi shankar and john coltrane and somehow managed to incorporate that into an incredible pop song about the experience of traveling to england and meeting the small faces and the beatles and the rolling stones and and having a pretty bad trip in england and and you know even though the title of the song is ostensibly about flying in a jet plane it's also about flying on other substances and, you know, just sort of brilliantly captures 1966 as few, you know, it's right up there with anything the Beatles or the Stones or Motown or, you know, or Dylan or anybody was doing absolutely on the cutting edge. But the single stiffed, there were, you know, radio newsletters that said it was a druggy song and there's actually been a quite a bit of research that that probably didn't kill the single. It was already weak except a few markets, but the net effect of all that was Gene Clark suddenly quit the band and, you know, various accounts of that, um, you know, and the great Johnny Rogan books about it or the biograph autobiographies of Chris Hillman or the biography of Gene Clark. I mean, a lot of people kind of blame Crosby with henpecking Gene Clark uh, a lot. Like originally Clark was supposed to be the rhythm guitar player and Crosby was supposed to play bass and Crosby couldn't play bass. And so then he's going to perform, you know, as the guy with the tambourine or whatever, and supposedly was uncomfortable with that and kind of managed to convince Gene Clark that Gene wasn't a good guitar player and even repeats that uh, to this day. And I noticed that McGuinn hardly talks about Gene at all. Like he mentions him 
a couple of times. Hillman has very nice things to say about Gene, and, and he and Michael Clark and Gene had lived together and been very tight. To what extent do you still see that split between McGuinn and Crosby and Clark still kind of haunting the survivors? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think Chris uh, has a lot of uh, warm feelings about Gene. I think that, um, you know, this was a very different time, right? And and today, I think there's a real focus um, and, and an important focus on mental health. And that's just not the type of thing that people talked about in this era. And I think you know, Gene had some mental health struggles. He struggled with anxiety, um, you know, and he struggled with things that probably he didn't even have uh, a name for. And certainly the other guys at that time um, didn't understand or or have a a grasp on. So um, there was this famous scene where they were getting ready to, to fly to New York and Gene just kind of freaked out and, you know, was convinced the plane was going to crash. And it it was basically an anxiety attack. Um, And I don't think that was a familiar concept to to people at the time. And so he left. He didn't get on, you know, he didn't go to New York and the guys went. It's it's interesting, actually, because a photo session that um, that Columbia Records did in New York like a day after that. So you can you can literally look at uh, these photos and like, okay, that's the day after that, that went down. And, you know, they, they didn't initially necessarily think, oh, Gene's leaving the band. Um, you know, they just thought, oh, Gene's gotta, you know, get in, get his head right. And, you know, he'll, he'll be back, but, you know, it just didn't, it didn't work for him to come back. And and I think that, I think mental health is the biggest thing. I, I think more than, you know, whatever the dynamic was between Crosby and Gene, um, I think that Roger, um, you know, had a lot of uh, respect for Gene. Obviously, it was the two of them that that started the whole thing. But you know, I, I think in the in the heat of, it's easy for us to look back as fans and kind of try to analyze all that. But again, how compressed uh, all of this was, and and the time frame in which it was happening you you realize like oh my gosh you know gene was only in the band for like a year after they um had their breakthrough and so and then you look at mcguinn's entire career and and how long the birds continued under mcguinn's leadership you know for him it was a brief time that that gene was in the band and i think mcguinn would say that you know gene was very important he was the most advanced uh early on in terms of songwriting and all of that um, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think there's just the complexity of, of mental health challenges that is really at the end of the day, what the, what the main issue was. And I think the other guys probably just didn't have the words or, or the understanding of that. Um, nor did anyone really at that time, except for mental health professionals. Um, so I think that ultimately is, is really, uh, what the, what the challenge was, but you're right. I, I do think that, of the three of them, Hillman um, definitely is is the one to kind of highlight uh, um, the the contributions of Gene. But um, you know, it, it's just unfortunate that that it kind of shook out the way that it did. And I think if it were uh, today, um, it might not happen that way. I think we just have a better understanding now on how to how to deal with some of that stuff. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and other bands are going through similar things around the same time. Brian Wilson's story of having a nervous breakdown on a plane is dark, but he was in a position where he could stay home and produce and and you know was kind of the sole auteur of the Beach Boys at the time and could keep it running. Right. But the book really captures how the four piece just kept going. That they you know put out Fifth Dimension and they and they press on and you know Hillman emerges as a as a fourth songwriting voice in the band and Crosby and McGuinn both step up both in collaborations and and solo and you know Younger Than Has- Yesterday is one of their greatest albums and you know incredible to watch a band produce that many singer songwriters and keep a cohesive sound and a cohesive feel but all was not well and David Crosby kind of becomes the odd man out after Clark leaves there's the Ed Sullivan incident which I think happened while Clark was still in the band and also the Monterey Pop incident. Tell us about these things and what was it that David Crosby did that alienated his partner so much? I think that that at the end of the day, um, it was probably just more of a general personality clash. Um, and I think now with the perspective of age and maturity, all three guys can kind of recognize, you know, where they were um mentally at the time part of it was that david had other ideas about the music that um that the others you know didn't quite gel with and i think that that crosby admits uh you know he talked about in these interviews for the book that he um was kind of becoming enamored with stephen stills and he wanted to to play with stephen stills he was um really enamored with with Stills guitar style and and the way that um as Crosby says that that there was a certain swing to his music that that he was drawn to that was kind of a different aesthetic um than kind of the folk rock that the the birds were doing so then you start getting into things where um you have band members going into the studio and adding or removing parts <laughs> to songs without the knowledge of the other band members. Um, you know, that, that was going on and, and disagreements about song selection and, you know, one guy might bring a song to the table and the other guys are like, no, nah, we're not really feeling that. Um, so you had kind of this tension sort of brewing and uh, when they get to the Monterey pop festival, um david goes on stage and he starts talking about the uh the kennedy assassination and that it was a a cover-up and that the government was you know lying to to everyone and i think that just surprised um hillman and mcguinn and you know roger says uh looking back he was probably right (laughs) but (laughs) we just weren't um we weren't interested in proselytizing or, or being political, like, which is kind of noteworthy really, because this is a, an era when a lot of bands were, were getting political and talking about social issues for, for the first time. That was kind of a new thing um, in music that you have these very vocal uh, artists talking about their social and political viewpoints. And um, the birds just didn't, they didn't do that. That wasn't part of their identity. Um, and so I think that that surprised Roger and Chris. And some people kind of point to that moment as like, oh, that was the end of the birds. But um, that wasn't really like that wasn't it. I mean, after Monterey, they did go off to Hawaii and they had this brief uh, creative period 
Um, but it was really more, uh, I think that moment was just indicative of how these guys were just on different paths at that time. Um, they wanted different things. They wanted, you know, their, their public identity, their idea of their public identity was different. Their idea of, you know, the kind of music that they were making was different. So I would just say that wasn't the straw that broke the camel's back, but it was one of the straws <laughs> that was added. And, you know, really what it came down to, I think, was um, ultimately David just didn't really want to be in the birds anymore. And I don't think maybe he even realized that until enough of these little flare ups happened that, you know, Chris and Roger uh, essentially drove up to his house and told him he was out of the band. Um, and I think David would say that he was upset at that time. But looking back now, he's kind of like, well, yeah, I probably need, it was time for me to do something different. You know, we weren't on the same page and, um, you know, he went on obviously to a huge success with, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash and, um, you know, the, the birds continued on into other phases and, uh, yeah. So I think it's just, it, it just probably wasn't the right personality mix at the end of the day. And, and, you know, when you think about how haphazardly, this band came together. It wasn't like these were all guys who'd been buddies since high school and really knew each other. They, they were getting to know each other as individuals at the same time that they were becoming major stars. Um, and, you know, personalities sometimes uh, clash, sometimes work together. And I think it was just that kind of growing up uh, experience amongst the three of them and figuring out, you know, who really works well together and, and who doesn't. Yeah, let's hear our last song, and this is David Crosby's Lady Friend, which the Birds released as a single. was Lady Friend, uh, written and sung by David Crosby. And that's one of those songs where you can really hear Crosby's vision coming to fruition. And 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 it's just a preview of what you're going to hear in Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and on his solo work, too. And, you know, Crosby's somebody who, when I first became aware of music and music criticism, I mean, you know, Rolling Stone gave his first solo album a bullet and for the worst possible rating, you know, and, and he was struggling with drugs and in prison and everything. And in the eighties, he was just at this real nadir of public regard, but in the nineties and since then, I think people have come to appreciate that this guy was doing some really innovative stuff. And obviously Crosby, Stills and Nash was massively popular and, and usually influential as soon as it hit the shelves. So, you know, Crosby was doing something right in there and it just wasn't the right format for him and, and, and his vision. There's also the song Triad, which Jefferson Airplane covered and the birds famously said, no, we're not going to do a song about, you know, your polyamorous lifestyle, (laughs) (laughs) right? you know, to to, take a turn to the Christian life and, and, uh, you know, the country period with, with Graham Parsons that follows. And so, um, how did you decide to end the book when you did in 1967? And, and what what was the thinking there? I mean, it makes perfect sense. Just elaborate on it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the idea was to essentially um, to to chart the path of the original lineup of the birds, and so the idea being obviously Gene left in 1966, uh, then David left in 1967, and then the band's down to a trio. Um, but that trio is still three of the five original guys. Um, so we wanted to just sort of follow the the path of the original lineup. Um, and then so Michael Clark left either the very tail end of, of 67 or, or very early in 68. Um, and so at that point, you're down to, to Hillman and McGuinn, uh, and then they rebuild the band. Essentially, that's when Graham Parsons came in. Um, but that Graham Parsons era and the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album, that's gotten so much attention uh, in recent years that it just felt like, okay, we, we have to have a cutoff somewhere here <laughs> with the book. And as it is, it's, you know, 400 pages. So um, it, it, it felt like, let's just focus on that original lineup and those five guys. So um, we didn't want to end the book with the group as a trio, which all the guys admit is kind of a depressing note to, to leave it on because it was kind of a winding down of one era of the birds and just before, you know, gearing up into a new era. So what we did is we, we did a little section of the 1972 reunion of the five original members. Um, there was some great photos that Henry Diltz took from those sessions. So we thought, well, it would be fun to show when those guys got back together in, in 72. And, uh, and, and then we had some photos from the Roy Orbison tribute concert and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, which was basically, those were, uh, the, the two, uh, times that the guys got back together. Um, and, you know, in terms of the original lineup. So, uh, we wanted to end it on more of a triumphant note. So the final image in the book is a nice two page color spread of the five original members at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on stage, uh, after they've been inducted. And it just felt like a nice, uh, a nice place to end it rather than ending on this weird note of, and then there were three, <laughs> which doesn't really, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really tell the, the full tale. Yeah, and it's a it's a beautiful spot to end it. And Gene Clark is just months away from his passing, and Michael Clark didn't have much time to live. So it's great to see that you know the five guys in their tuxedos getting to be celebrated with their peers, you know, and the Beatles and the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones and all the other you know mighty stars at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that's why the thing about the Birds is that those first two singles, and they weren't even the first two singles, they put out Mr. Tambourine Man, and then I think Turn, Turn, Turn was their fourth or fifth single. But, you know, those are the two big songs that you always hear at the grocery store that were always on the TV shows and in the movies, and they're so synonymous with the mid-60s. And it's, um, it's easy to forget just how big and how potent a force they were in their peak. And I think this book really does a great job of capturing what a whirlwind it was and just a short period of time, but enormous changes. I mean, going from the Kingston trio uh, look at the beginning of the book to the rock and roll hall of fame at the end and this end period, the, the notorious bird brothers period and the greatest hits photo sessions. And, you know, you see Crosby in his Russian hat and when with his goatee and Hillman's got his full Jimi Hendrix, uh, you know, Afro going and they really, you get to see on their faces that these guys have been on an, odyssey and, and a real lifetime of action and adventure in just an 18 month period and yeah so thank you so much this book really 
captures this very important period in rock history. The book is The Birds, 1964 to 1967, written by the original, the surviving original members, Roger McGuinn, David Crosby, and Chris Hillman, with my guest, Scott B. Beaumont. Thanks so much, Scott. Yeah, thanks. And I will also add that if folks want to get a copy of the book, um, they can get it at birdsbook.com. And there's a standard edition. There's also a deluxe edition that is signed by Roger McGuinn and Chris Hillman. And then there's a super deluxe edition that's signed by McGuinn, Hillman, and Crosby. Each edition kind of comes with some other bells and whistles that you can uh, check out there. And it's it's something for everyone, a little bit more accessible price point uh, for the standard edition all the way up to the the Cadillac version with all three signatures, but um, definitely appreciate you giving me some time to chat with you about the birds and, and about this super fun book project and uh, hope folks enjoy checking it out. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes disability advocate Anthony Tussler to discuss the great Doc Thomas. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.